0: I trusted Mark Grunin with my life, no doubt. Mark had also given me a tremendous amount of perspective on life. Two years before this climb I'm about to tell you about, he had a battle with cancer. and went through surgery, radiation treatment, and chemotherapy. And all through this, Mark never stopped climbing. Shortly after finishing chemo back east, he returned to the west and went straight for medicine man in Colorado National Monument, sending the difficult crux pitch yelling, Fuck you, cancer, when you reach the belay. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. From the Climbing Zine, I am your host, Luke Mihaw. and we are reading the desert. If this is just popping up in your podcast feed, recommend you to go back to Episode 1 for Season 2. The first probably 10 or so, 10 to 12 episodes are all going to be a complete story from the desert. If you like what you're hearing and you want to support this podcast, the best way to do that is check the link in your show notes for our store. There's a little discount code in there and you can pick up a printed copy of this book in paperback or hardcover. You can subscribe to The Climbing Zine. You can get Dirtbag State of Mind merch and um, some other goodies in there. Let's get into episode three. Writing about the desert should be simple, but in America, a simple narrative tells lies. And I don't want to tell no lies, not for romanticism, not for beatneckism, not for dirtbagism. Every American's life is shaped by religion, war, race, gender, and circumstance. By circumstance, I never went to war. I did not find a religion to embrace, and my race and gender never hindered me. And it was under those conditions that I became an American climber and discovered the magic Of the desert. Perhaps the greatest appeal to the adventurous soul is the fact that the climbing in the desert has only really been relatively safe since the invention of the cam. That bad boy came into the world in 1978, the same year I did, so the modern desert climbing experience was born when I was. Thus, we have another barrier to writing about the simple life in the desert, and that is gear, which is not simple or inexpensive at all. The dirtbag life had its requirements, and to adequately meet those requirements, you needed something. Dollar dollar bills, y'all. Dead presidents. This so called simple life required expensive materials. Sure, you could do without them, but no one in the climbing world liked a mooch or a freeloader. Bringing something to the table in climbing is essential. It wasn't like being a dirty hippie. Having nothing was not prized for climbers. If anything, the more you brought to the table, the more you were valued. We needed gasoline. Absolutely essential to get from point A to point B. Thankfully, our government subsidizes petroleum. We thought about climate change and discussed it, but we hadn't been given much of an option for alternative fuels that don't release as much carbon dioxide or any at all. Something about the government being in bed with the oil industry, I guess. As long as gas was cheap, the dirtbags would hardly think twice about multiple fill-ups to traverse the country just to climb rocks. Gear, we need it. We gotta have it like a heroin addict needs a needle. Ropes, nylon ropes, the best damn technological breakthrough for climbing that came out of World War II. They are like bomb-proof spiderwebs, ensuring we'll stay glued to the wall. They won't break, plummeting us to our deaths, unlike the twine and hemp versions that preceded it. Gotta have that nylon, baby. Aluminum, mmm, gotta have that too for our carabiners. Steel as well for those anchors. Magnesium carbonate for those sweaty palms. Rain jackets with Gore-Tex. Synthetic clothes made from polypropylene. Specific shoes made with rubber. Tents, sleeping bags, stoves. Headlamps, helmets, coolers, iPhones, iPods, eye crash pads. I need it all. My college years in the desert were adventurous and crazy. A complete immersion in the unknown. After I graduated, I began to roam from climbing area to climbing area, and the desert just seemed like another destination in the circuit. It was in that era that the inevitable plateau began for me on the Colorado Plateau. I was mostly a dropout from society, and climbing and living in a tent which as much as default as it was my passion. When I began my life on the road as a climber, destinations became the major ones, not just the proverbial backyard places like Escalante Canyon and Colorado National Monument. When I landed in the desert, I usually landed in Indian Creek. The creek had an ease and charm to it. Like Escalante, it was located on BLM land. There were also several conservation easements between the ranchers and the Nature Conservancy. Hard work and compromises created so that the public could enjoy the land. I was enjoying it and calling it home for the time being. College degree in recreation and environmental studies earned. Living in a fresh, brand new tent in the Bridger Jacks camping area. The Bridger Jacks, eight towers in a row, ranging from 150 to 400 feet, were quintessentially Indian Creek, only in the realm of being iconic, though. While most of Indian Creek crack climbing borders on perfection, these towers only had a few perfect splitter cracks. As for eye candy, they set a perfect backdrop. There was the Easter Island Tower, aptly named with no further description required. And then there was the King of Pain, a monster of a tower, it appeared to have a cherry on top in the form of a giant boulder, eroded, waiting for time to come along and add it to the talus below. And what climber wouldn't want a backyard like that? A lot of climbers did, and despite the bumpy road back there, the campsites were mostly full, so I set it on a cornered site. Not at all appealing, not a tree for shade, but still a corner to erect my new tent. Mark Grundon was the first to find me for a climb. He was one of those many partners I had from college. In fact, the greatest gifts I think my college experience brought me were good friends and adventure partners. After all, my plan was to live rich on a cheap budget. A competent, safe partner was the very first ingredient on the list for this recipe. In those years, from time to time, I'd end up with some random partners, and occasionally it would work out, but I always found something was missing. It's kind of like sex. Sure, you could hook up with a random, but doing it with someone that you knew ensured that it would be more meaningful, safe, and enjoyable. Needless to say, I'm not an orgy guy. I was led to believe, innocently and naively, that simply stated most climbers were like me and I would get along with them. But the more I climbed with random people and experienced the climbing community, the more I only wanted to climb with my trusted friends. It's kind of like a job, And there needs to be a resume showing one spent years learning the basics and the fundamentals from mentors. Many modern climbers seriously lack this, and then when they go climbing, it shows. The things that always bothered me about climbing with the randoms were the unnecessary risks, like people who don't check their knots, belays, or harnesses before venturing up into the vertical. Or those that half-heartedly belay, as if the rope were a fishing line in a drunken weekend afternoon. I trusted Mark with my life, no doubt. Mark had also given me a tremendous amount of perspective on life. Two years before this climb I'm about to tell you about, he had a battle with cancer. He went through surgery, radiation treatment, and chemotherapy. And all through this, Mark never stopped climbing. Shortly after finishing chemo back east, he returned to the west and went straight for Medicine Man in Colorado National Monument and sent the crux pitch, yelling, fuck you, cancer, when he reached the belay. Mark also gave me writing fodder by being such a brave, inspiring soul. My first creative essay that was published in a major magazine, The Mountain Gazette, was written about him and our adventures together. I'd originally written it out by hand during breaks at my restaurant gig at a coffee shop. At the time, I didn't know if my friend would survive, so it was written with tears and heart, savoring the memories and the moments. He'd also confirm the truth that life is precious and time is limited. We all know that, but until we feel it, that truth is hard to absorb into the soul. Once you know it, feel it, and experience it, well, it's then that I think the real living happens. The thing about climbing is that it's this delicate edge one tries to dance upon. And as Kelly Cordes says, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much room, right? They're the unavoidable risks, just like driving a car. And then there's the risk we can control. I knew for sure that those partners I danced with took these risks seriously, and I did not want to dance with those who did not. We sought powders of persuasion on the Bridger Jack Butte, the rightmost tower on the formation, famous for a hand crack that was supposed to be a full 200-foot rope length. That dihedral was obviously visible from camp, but the rest of the climb appeared to be a mystery. From experience, I knew that the cap rock would be loose, a layer of deteriorating sandstone, out of character in a climbing area known for its perfect cracks. We were lured in by the long hand crack, which seemed like something to see, to experience, I imagine pure bliss, perfect jams way high off the deck, poetry and motion. Of course, this is climbing, and is never as one anticipates. This long corner was guarded by a chimney that was not at all sexy or appealing. It was a pitch to get to the next pitch. I climbed up, approached a death block that hovered in the chimney, and down climbed right back to the belay. The success of the climb was now in Mark's hands. Did he want to go up and check it out or bail and head back to the splitterville that surrounded us? Mark wasn't giving up without a proper fight. Off with and chimney climbing could easily be compared to a fight. Your hands are all taped up, and you're ready to accept cuts and bruises in order to be successful. Soon enough, Mark was on the sharp end and masterfully climbed up to the death block and positioned himself around it, using some sort of Houdini technique that I had not considered. It was as if he magically positioned himself around the boulder, careful not to touch it, with the prospect of dislodging it straight onto me. With that magical movement, he set us up for success, and we were now below the epic hand-crack corner. This was just like Mark. I would have been fine with bailing and going to a crag with perfect splitters all around, but he found a way to make it happen. And then we could finally experience that dihedral we've been staring at all these years as we camped in the Bridger Jacks. The pitch was a powerful piece of geometry and geology, nearly 200 feet of perfect verticality. It packed a punch, similar to many pitches I've done in Indian Creek. At first it seemed easy, jamming hands and feet into the crack, but then the pump started to kick in, and I was afraid I'd fall. The equation was so simple, but the physiology was not. But as I got pumped out, I demanded myself to rise to the occasion of this feature, and I managed not to fall out, focusing on my breathing and thinking positive thoughts. When I finished the pitch, that very familiar adrenaline wash came over my brain, and I collapsed into a puddle of satisfaction at the belay. I was as one with the desert as one can get. Well, at least until we are dust ourselves. We still had two pitches to go, and the rock got worse as we went up. Near the top, on the sharp end again, I went 20 feet out without gear, using that technique of balance and prayer on delicate sandstone edges and holds. I was just waiting for that break when I would go plummeting down to the marginal gear I'd snuck into some horizontal cracks. But it never happened. On the top was an epic view of sandstone for miles, And then a strange sight, a copy of the Book of Mormon with burned pages and some vain attempt at fire. What the hell was going on there I'd probably never know, but it represented the hedonistic aspect of climbing. These days I'd clean something like that up, trash on sacred ground. That particular day we were too worried about how we'd get down. The rappel anchors were less than ideal, but passed our test of redundancy and safety. The pioneers of the desert seemed to think little about the long term use of their anchors or they simply just didn't have the quality of bolts and hangers that we had today. Many bolts, pitons, and anchors were like landmines left from a forgotten battle. Hanging off tattered, sun-bleached webbing, we vowed to come back someday and fix that. This episode is sponsored by Osprey. Osprey and the climbing zine share the same backyard. Located just down the road from Durango in Cortez, Osprey makes innovative, high-performance gear that reflects a love of adventure and devotion to the outdoors. High-quality packs for any adventure and season. We are proud to share a home with Osprey here in the Four Corners region of Southwest Colorado. And to find out more, visit osprey.com. This episode is also sponsored by Black Diamond. Another longtime sponsor of the climbing zine, Black Diamond, is all about climbing, skiing, and mountains. And, of course, the desert. Black Diamond Camelots are an essential ingredient for heading up any splitter. From the new 7 and 8 C4s to the new Z4s, you can never have too many Camelots in the creek. But once your Creek 50 backpack fills up, might as well hand the rest of the rack to your buddy to carry up. To find out more, visit BlackDiamondEquipment.com. Mark left the desert soon after this, onto a guiding gig in the Northwest. In college, that was supposed to be my career too. I love climbing, so why wouldn't it be a perfect job? But I soon realized I didn't have the nerves or the patience for guiding. Holding my climbing partner's life in my hands, I knew well, was enough for me. Being responsible for a beginner who was a stranger gave me too much anxiety. Guiding is tough, blue-collar work. And it was another thing I admired Mark for. Still, I wondered if I was making a mistake by not following that path. I was just washing dishes for a living, the same damn job I had when I was 16. I got a paycheck now and again for freelance writing, but there were few and far between. Writing was more of a hobby than a job. Just as Mark rolled out, some more friends rolled in. Dave Ahrens was on a similar schedule and life path as Mark. Getting some desert climbing in before guiding season really kicked off. Dave was guiding on Denali in Alaska. He seemed to savor the dirt and absence of snow as much as the climbing. It would be rough as the season from Colorado went from winter to spring, then to go up high back to winter in Alaska, even though it's summer. Dave was easy to please in the desert, and he had a certain vibe of contentment, always there. He made me feel at ease. Dave was one of those all-American guys. He often lived like a dirtbag, but always seemed to be clean-shaven and smell like soap. As a teenager with a single mother, he started to go down the path of a troubled youth. But then an outward bound trip showed him the glories of the outdoors. He joked that Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership School, stood for nerds out losing shit. But deep down, we knew organizations like that saved lives and made lives worth living because of nature like his. When his mother needed a liver transplant, he offered to have the surgery for her. A massive scar across his belly shows his love for his mom and his unequivocal dedication to always doing the right thing. His voice is even quintessentially American in the best of ways, like he's a beloved radio host. I used to think it was just a fun thing he did until I heard him call his mom one day when we were on a climbing trip. He talked to her in that same exact voice. Hey mom, it's your son Dave here coming at you from Zion National Park, a true American treasure. How the heck are you? Dave smoothed out the edges in our ragtag dirtbag crew and made it all seem wholesome. He never liked the crowds much, and in his heart, he was always more of an old-school climber, doing it for the satisfaction and the silence, for the sake of the song. Tim Folks had shown up when Dave did, another buddy from college who, like Dave, had a career in the outdoors and wasn't just aimlessly floating like I was. He lived in Monticello, the closest town to Indian Creek, and ran an outdoor youth corp. Tim was one of the first people I met in Gunnison, and one of those people I knew I'd be friends with right off the bat. He clearly liked fun, and he also didn't shy away from tough topics of conversation. Just a couple months into our friendship, he told me about his father committing suicide when he was a teenager. Tim and I have been through a lot together, and I watched him go from the guy who could easily drink a 12-pack to quitting drinking altogether. He's the leader of our Indian Creek crew. His friendliness could be described as legendary, People never forget meeting Tim, and sometimes at the crag, he's a bit of a celebrity. The definitive quality about Tim as a climber is his love for ice climbing. He loves Indian Creek through and through, and he has dedicated countless hours to trail building, elaborate campfire parties, and new rooting. But somehow, even on a hot summer day, he'll turn the conversation to ice climbing. It's a skill of his. Name the topic, Rusting Collusion in Our Presidential Race, Ooh, I hear Russia has great ice climbing. Global warming? Oh, that's going to be bad for ice climbing. Did you watch the World Series, Tim? Oh, the World Series. That means ice climbing season just around the corner. Did I tell you about this route me and Smokey Joe did in the Black Canyon last season? It was epic. Tim can simply turn any conversation into talking about ice climbing. He loves ice climbing more than anyone I've ever met, as if he was an ambassador for frozen water. He views everyone he meets as a future friend. And once you've got Timmy's approval, well, you're in the crew. The day Tim and Dave arrived, I was taking a rest day. So I did what you do in Indian Creek. I left them a message on the Beef Basin message board, just off the highway, and told them what my plans were. My rest day was just like any other rest day. Showering, stocking up in beer and food, checking my email, writing in my journal, calling the parents, stuff like that. Once I'd done everything I needed to do, I headed back home to my campsite. As I rolled in, I realized something wasn't right. My brand new tent, my home, was flattened. My heart sank when I saw the sight. My brand new tent trampled and crushed to oblivion, and the contents of the cooler spilled out in what appeared to be an act of vandalism. I looked around to find the culprit. Then I looked to the ground and saw hoof prints. Horses. It was horses. Anger mixed with disbelief. There are many places where it's downright stupid to leave out food in a cooler, but the creek is not necessarily one of those places. We always leave our coolers out. Further inspection revealed that the horses had eaten some of the carrots I had in my cooler, and they even drank a couple beers. Dave and Tim quickly arrived on the scene. I expected sympathy, but all they did was laugh and make fun of me. They did, however, secure a better spot in the campground. I quickly moved in, happy to get out of that campsite that would be forever known as the spot where the horse incident occurred. It was then that I moved into a new tent. Dave had an extra that he'd stashed away in his truck for times like this. As he described it, each detail seemed to be better than the next. You're in luck, I have this extra tent I scored on Denali last year, he started. It's a high-end mountaineering model, probably retailed around a thousand bucks, Dave continued. These clients just left it behind after their expedition, said they didn't want it anymore, and my boss said I could have it. Uh, but there's just one catch, he said. And? I asked. Well, there were a lot of bad storms on that trip, so the guy started, you know, relieving himself in the vestibule. As in shitting? I inquired. Yeah, Dave said with his face still deadpan. Then the storm got really bad. So the one guy just started taking care of his business in the tent. And one time, he he missed. He missed, I asked. He missed, Dave answered. He missed the bag. And a little bit got in the tent. And that's how I got it. I cleaned it out with bleach and aired it out for days. It's good to go, man. An awkward silence fell upon us. It's better than nothing, Dave said convincingly. Better than nothing, I repeated. Well, I guess I don't have a ton of options right now. It's clean, he said. I use bleach. Well, shit. I guess I'm moving into the shit tent, I declared. That was episode three, season two of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from The Climbing Zine. I am, of course, Luke Mihaw. Beats and music for this episode were created by the brilliant Devin Dabney, senior contributor to The Climbing Zine, amazing writer, rapper, and all-around good guy. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. Chad is an absolute hero, and the reason this podcast sounds so pro is because of him. As I said at the top, check the link in your show notes if you want to support this podcast by picking up a book, zine, merch, stickers. We got all those things. And coming at you from Durango, Colorado, thanks for listening. Peace.